Uh, just before we transition to those classes, I'd like to invite you to take a Bible there in the pew as we read one piece, one brief psalm. It's uh, Psalm 28, verse 7 through 9, and this is on page 634 in these Bibles here in the pews, just these three verses, and uh, want to give thanks together, and as Justin has just led us, please lift Sylvia Gorman in your prayers for complete healing and restoration, blessing upon her and strength. And um, each of you that join us in Facebook Live, when you're not here, we miss you. Uh, laughing at myself earlier, I was thinking, how did I miss not seeing Ruth? So Ruth, hey, we're so glad you're here, because <laughs> I know you're here. And uh, missing everybody, just as we do her, when you're not able to be with us. We're so grateful that we can connect this way. And I often say we want it to be as interactive as it possibly can be. So let us know if there's something on your heart that you'd like for us to pray with you about or you'd like to share something with us. We'd love to hear back from you. We're reading three verses today in Psalm 28, verses 7 through 9 on page 634. Would you read them aloud with me together? The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song I will praise him. The Lord is their strength, and he is the saving refuge of his anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Shepherd them also and bear them up forever. Now together before we go, uh, boys and girls, moms and dads, granddads and grandmothers, uh, go back to that seventh verse. Read that last half of the seventh verse from the word therefore. Read it out boldly together with me. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song, I will praise him. Here in the very heart of the Psalms is a clear reminder of part of what we just sang. There's power in the name of Jesus that enables the redeemed child of God to direct his or her thoughts where they need to go and to become active as a praiser. And that means conquering a whole lot of emotional obstacles. So we're going to be looking at it together as we talk about light-hearted living. And now our explorers and pathfinders can go to their classes. And thanks again to each of you teaching, each volunteer teacher. Thank you for the teaching teams, for Jonathan and Jessica today, for pathfinders. And uh, thank you again, Marsha and Jody, for your coordination and planning. Uh, just before you're seated, go find two people to say, I'm so glad I'm in the kingdom with you. Would you do that? I'm so glad I'm in the kingdom with you. There you go. That's right. That's right. Amen. Boys and girls and everyone. Hey, Amanda, good to see you. Blessings to you. <laughs> Great. Bless you. Hey, good to see you. Oh my goodness. I hope you missed you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Be happy to. Be happy to do that. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you and welcome. It's so good to it is good to just connect and greet one another and we love this here at Liberty. We love the uh the mingling. We love the connection. We love to be able to know how how you how we can 
um, partner together in, in kingdom life. And of course, that's what we're talking about. Lighthearted living is kingdom life. I know immediately when I say that, that there could be a drastic contradiction <laughs> in many people's minds. Lighthearted living? What are you talking about? With all the heaviness, all the harshness in our culture, all the disarray and disintegration of institutions that Americans have trusted for generations, all of the distrust of leadership, all of the controversies, the scandals, the sheer mess that we see reported in the news, whether you're an old-fashioned print news consumer or the uh, most people today, uh, social media or, or via television and via instantaneous um, live broadcast. The fact is, aren't we surrounded by all kinds of heart-sickening realities? Is that not true? Um, here, let me, let me uh, headline it here for you this way. We know a text, it's not in my notes here today, but we know a text of Ephesians 5.16 that says, we are living in evil days. The days are evil, the times are evil. So the text of Ephesians 5.16 tells us to redeem the time or make the most of every opportunity. Why? Because, because, why, why? Because the days are evil. Say out that word, four letters, E-V-I-L, say it with me, evil. Now, there's no doubt about it. We're surrounded by many, now it's a contradiction even within a contradiction actually because I'm looking out the windows as I say these things and looking at this beautiful sun-kissed morning, the beautiful rolling hills of Carroll County, the, the wonderful gift of God in nature. Now that aspect of the world, everything God has designed is fabulously wonderful and, and beautiful, isn't it? All of the things that God designed and created, that's why we're so touched by beautiful birds and underwater sea creatures when we go to an aquarium or, or look at uh, pictures of, 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 of telescopic images of, of outer space. We're, we're humbled, we're awed by the majesty of God. And yet over against that, there's the evil, say it with me again, evil, of, uh, that comes out of human expression and human experience and human failure. So how in the world, Pastor, could you talk in the middle of February, in a year like 2022, about light-hearted living. What's wrong with you? We're supposed to all be in the dumps. We're supposed to all be, as a friend of mine in Alabama years ago used to say, call it the Monday morning mulligrubs. Have you ever had the Monday morning mulligrubs? You know, you hit Monday morning and you just think, oh my, here we go again, right? But I hope to signal for you first to capsulize what I'd like for us to explore together in two primary passages, John 14 and Acts 5, but a number of other scriptures that you'll see on the screen. But I'd like to highlight it for you with this simple conviction that arises from these texts, and that is his joy in you. His joy in you. Clearly, there's something distinctive, there's something powerful, there's something magnificent, there's something difficult to express in human language about the kind of joy that Jesus imparts in his promise of the Holy Spirit to dwell within the lives of the redeemed children of God. But a forecast of that is in a little proverb, Proverbs 15, 15, that tells us 
all the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful heart has a continual feast. Would you say aloud with me together, the cheerful heart? Say it with me. The cheerful heart has a continual feast. Here in the text of that tiny little nugget of truth, the pithy sayings of Proverbs, is a timeless reality. Yes, there's a lot. The first half of the verse refers to being afflicted or oppressed. Yes, there are many things around us in the culture, and frankly, I think there are three primary sources of the sourness that's affecting many Christians' lives today. There is the problem of their own character, there's the problem of the culture, and there's the problem of circumstances. But the text tells us that there's something about a cheerful heart. Now, clearly, the Proverbs are referring to something more on the natural, or we might say psychological level, that which can be observed in all of humanity. A cheerful heart has a continual feast. The, the idea there is that there is something about what we choose to dwell upon and how we choose to cope with the circumstances around us that is a God-given reality. Now, we're strictly talking now, before we go to the book of John, we're talking about just a natural faculty. And isn't it interesting how the Bible highlights many of these things throughout both Old and New Testament? There are certain things about the way God has designed the human personality and the human experience that is truly a God-given blessing and that we should be thankful for on the natural level. In other words, when people find out that there's value in having a cheerful disposition, that's a God-given fact. Now, it, it may be pretty weak. It might not stand up against the rigorous tests of adversity in some people's lives because they're going to hit a wall eventually in natural strength. But we should not, biblically, we shouldn't neglect that basic truth. The cheerful heart, he says, has a continual feast. And when we contrast it or think about how it is that all of us contend with emotional fog, we should realize that some of the things we're going to start with before we move into this powerful promise of Jesus is that we've got to see the landscape of human experience. There is a the best that word I can think of to describe what many people are going through today is a kind of angst. It's a floating anxiety. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of an overhanging, almost like a, it's almost like the danger of, um, of, of carbon monoxide in a room where you can't taste it or smell it or, or see it, and yet it, it's deadly. Well, that, there's an angst. There's a kind of a spiritually deadly angst that is touching a lot of people's lives in our culture. And why would I be talking to you about it unless it was affecting followers of the Lord? This is a congregation geared to celebrating what it means to follow the Lord Jesus with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's no doubt that many in this church and in the churches you love and in the fellowships that, that we network with that are dealing with an angst right now. The, the heaviness of all of the controversies. You open your tablet or your computer or your, or your phone and you're, and you're 
crisscrossing, um, angry, vicious reactions between people continuously, and you're seeing a kind of a swamp of disunion and dis and division that, in regardless of where you fall on the compass, it is diminishing the kind of co communication that can be enriching to people's lives. It is true God has given us this capacity to deal with hurt and disillusionment, but we've got to see it in the scripture for ourselves. So maybe you could be here today with a, an angst or disillusionment about how people have failed you, about how circumstances have not materialized the way you had hoped and believed. And there could be a very deep level of that disillusionment in people's lives. I want you to see from God's word how powerfully he's equipping us to have a light-hearted life. Now, as I say, first of all, we have to give credence <laughs> to the things that God gives us in the natural order. That's a good thing. Alan Simpson said it so well that humor is like a universal solvent against the abrasive elements of life. And why ask you for a moment, is it possible that God himself has used this gift of humor, placed it into the fabric of the human personality as one of the many signposts to help us recognize how good he is? We need something that's a solvent against the abrasive elements of life. And for that reason, I believe in God's promise of the Holy Spirit. He gives us the ultimate blessing of how to keep a lively, fresh, totally free sense of the gift of God in humor. C.S. Lewis um, put it so well when he closed his autobiographical book called Surprised by Joy, when Lewis said that joy from God is, is like a road sign pointing us to a relationship with him. The humor, the, the, the liveliness, the lightheartedness, the, the, the things that strike you all of a sudden and just get you laughing. Barbara Johnson, the author of that funny little series of books uh, in, out of the Women of Faith movement about 20 years ago, she wrote a little book called Stick a Geranium in Your Hat and Be Happy, another one called Splashes of Joy in the Cesspools of Life. And she just had this really unique way with words. And uh, what she used to say was that um, if you want flowers to grow, you've got to realize they've got to go through a lot of dirt to get to the sunshine. And there are a lot of things we've got to press through in order to tap into what Lewis was talking about. He basically said, once we've found a relationship with God, we no longer need to trouble ourselves so much about seeking for joy because it is in him. It's in the Lord. A 15th century writer reflecting on what it means to tap into the power of what we'll read in God, the Gospel of John said his name was Richard Rollet, and he wrote about falling in love 
with the living Savior, even in a time, now think of the time I'm talking about, that was a time that most of us think of as purely dark ages, and yet here's a guy through the Bible, through reading the Gospel of John, through discovering the joy that we're looking at today, he wrote all those hundreds of years ago that he who is truly a lover of Jesus Christ does not say his prayers like other men, for seated in his right mind and ravished with Christ's love above himself, he's taken into a marvelous mirth. The old-fashioned word for hilarious laughter. We're taken to the courts of the king when we fall in love with Jesus. And it's not only writers like Lewis and Rollet and Johnson who observe this gift of humor. I believe in many places in Scripture, God embedded it intentionally himself. In fact, chronologically, in terms of the writing of manuscripts, most scholars believe the book of Job predates the book of Genesis when it was actually written. And we might say the first written composition that is a part of our Bible, the book of Job, includes that wondrous encounter where God brings his servant up short after Job is at his literally at his wit's end, and God begins in the 38th chapter to walk Job through the wondrous beauty and marvel of the universe, including the fascinating array of animals like the giraffe and the ostrich and many others, and as if to say, hey, Job, you need to see how insignificant you are in comparison to my magnificent power, but in that very insignificance, I'm going to give you a foretaste of heaven by giving you a good laugh. De Job's response to the absurdity of how could I have ever thought I could compete with the God who designed the giraffe, let's say. And Job put it this way, the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? And Job's response was, I abhor myself in sackcloth and ashes, and I realize that I spoke without knowledge. I spoke aimlessly. So I believe for many of us, like the experience of Job and like many people are struggling with today, there is a nagging question, and I think really there are two very significant questions that are answered in our primary text. First is, is this all there is? Lots of people in the angst of life are asking, is this all there is? There has to be something more. And maybe even in the Christian life as you've walked for a period of time and you've struggled with your own perplexities, there can be a yearning, a good yearning, like the yearning in Job to have some clarity about his perplexing situation. And God, God, God lifted some of the funniest animals in the forest to remind Job of the magnificent creativity and splendor of God. And it's as if to say, yes, Job, there is something more than what you've seen. But let's not cancel out those thoughts by thinking, well, I already know what the something more is. No, that's part of our problem. Sometimes we think we already know what the Holy Spirit wants to make vividly alive and real to us. And then the second question, of course, is where do I go from here? 
how can I move beyond a place of angst, a place of disillusionment, a place where I feel that spiritually I'm dragging my feet? Now, I want to ask you to find two passages in your Bible, Acts 5 and John 14, for also realizing that what we see when we bring this into the, into the reality of our daily lives is that the contradiction I began with is, how can you talk about lighthearted living when so many things in life feel so heavy? And the answer comes from both of these passages. I want to begin from Acts chapter 5 by looking at something that would appear to us to be one of the most troubling and difficult experiences we could ever imagine, and that would be to have someone physically persecute us for the simple fact of talking about the Lord Jesus. If I talk about Jesus, not only will I be maybe ostracized or criticized, but actually physically hit, physically beaten. Now, most of us would say, that doesn't sound very lighthearted. But what we see in the text is, there is an effervescent quality of joy that literally leaps off the page in two parts here of Acts 15. Start with me, if you would, at the 19th verse, where we read that, um, that the apostles were arrested by the Sanhedrin, by the ruling religious council there in Jerusalem. And it says in Acts 5.18 that they were put in the public jail. Now, the 19th verse of Acts 5 tells us something amazing about the intervention of God. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. King James Bible says, tell them all the words of this new life. There is a resilient, uplifting, dynamic, powerful joy in what sends these apostles back out from the jailbreak, angelic jailbreak, into the streets to talk about all the things about this new life. So clearly, as they proclaimed Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem, they were exuberantly expressing the liveliness of a relationship with him, it was unmistakable. Of course, when uh, word got back to the ruling council that these men are back out on the streets and they're, and they're proclaiming all that they had said before, the Bible tells us in verse 27 that the apostles were then brought in and made to appear before the high priest where he sternly Dressed them down in verse 28. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Peter's answer, of course, is well known in verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. And he begins to tell about how God had sent his son, the Savior, to hang on the cross for the sins of the world. And then it begins a controversy in the council. And they're arguing about what should they do to these men. They know that the people in the city realize what an a undeniable miracle has happened and how powerful their witness is. So they're tempted to try to shut it down. And yet Gamaliel, the wise old Gamaliel, 
intervenes and says, let's, um, let's just um, let this work its way out because if they're, if they're um, right, then we're going to be, um, we're, we're going to be in, in trouble. But if they're wrong, it will come to nothing. And then you see in the, um, in the, 20, in the 40th verse, he says, after telling them, if you will not be able to stop these men, you'll only find yourselves fighting against God. And the 40th verse says, they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, there's all kinds of things happening in our culture. We call it cancel culture now, where people are literally being shut down, being told to shut up, get out of the public square, shut your mouth, don't say what you really believe. And this itself is another area of controversy in our culture. And yet these guys experienced the ultimate cancel culture. They were told to shut up and never speak in the name of Jesus again. But what we read in verse 41 and 42 shows us this dynamic quality of joy. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Why? Because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they did not stop proclaiming Jesus. Now, we have to ask ourselves the question, how in the world could people become so... Um, so bold, so courageous, so resilient in the face of so much pressure. And the other question we should ask is, if they could prevail and joyously, they didn't just go out and force themselves back into service, they were exuberant about it. There's obvious, if you go back to John 14, that these men were experiencing exactly what Jesus had promised in John 14, in John chapter 14, he spoke of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, we started today with the natural part. God gives a gift of humor. God gives a liveliness of the heart. But this takes us to an entirely new dimension. And we often miss the fact that Jesus in John 14 is giving us supernatural ingredients for joy. Yeah, let's think of it this way. Jesus in John 14 is giving us the capacity to truly be light-hearted in the face of the heaviest, most frustrating, most discouraging circumstances around us. No one in my hearing, I think, today has physically been beaten for talking about Jesus. None of us have, have been imprisoned for talking about Jesus. And and yet, that doesn't diminish how difficult some of our struggles are. In fact, the emotional struggle that many people are facing today is a deep pit. <laughs> and that's why, if we go to John 14 and begin to think about what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit's coming, I hope we might could see it in a new light. He said in verse 15 of John 14, If you love, my my, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Now, Jesus speaks these words that place before the apostles this mysterious promise of the coming of the 
comforter, the advocate, the helper. And sometimes in our lives, we get so used to already knowing who the Holy Spirit is that we don't stop and realize how awesome and how magnificent this promise was. We can't miss the fact that when Jesus was explaining the Holy Spirit coming, they wanted nothing more than for Jesus to stay with them. And they were about to hit the most unimaginable shock of their lives. Within a few hours, the beloved, miracle-working, glorious teacher was going to be brutally crucified and killed, and they were going to witness the betrayal and the entire sequence of events. And Jesus now, if we can step back into that uh, into that 18th verse, tells them, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me. And now, friends, underline this phrase in verse 20, I am in you. This forecast a powerful truth, and I put this reference on the screen, though we won't have time to turn to it, but you may want to look it up as well. This is where Jesus gives a bright, clean light forecast onto the playing field of life in Colossians 1.27, where the Bible says God had promised all along to make known the glory of this great mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. He hints at it. He prophesies it. He promises it in that uh, 20th verse of John 14 when he says, I will dwell in you. Like many things the apostles heard, no doubt they wondered, well, what does that mean? How does that happen? And of course, he's introducing them to the comforter who is to come. Now, if we think about these two passages we've looked at, there's a parallel between the promise Jesus gives and that and that moment when Peter and John and, and their companions came bursting out of a prison cell for another round of beatings to be flogged by the Sanhedrin and warned to not talk about Jesus, and yet exuberantly they went forth rejoicing. And what we find here is an amazing parallel. First of all, in the text of John 14, he gives them astounding resources. And he, and he summarizes it by telling them that his goal is for their joy to be full. He says this in John 15, 11, that you may walk in this powerful reality that your joy may be full. And in verse 23 of John 14, if you just run your eyes down here a little further, you see that uh, Jesus relinks this wonderful joy to an act which he now places in your power. Think about it like this. When God invites us to obedience, it is never in human strength. It is in the power that the Holy Spirit places within you. We know this. From the great uh, explanation of Romans chapter 8 about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. 
where, where Romans chapter 8, verse 10 and 11 says that left to our fleshly and human strength, we're incapable of the kind of obedience that genuinely pleases God. And yet, Christ dwelling in you makes you a carrier of the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit by which Romans 8, 12 says you may mortify the deeds of the body. And in verse 15 of Romans 8, he says you've now received not the spirit of bondage to a tyrannical fear, oh no, but the spirit, capital S, of adoption, the spirit of sonship, the spirit of belonging to your heavenly Father, whereby you cry, Abba, Father. And in that reality, Romans 8, 16 says, the Holy Spirit, capital S, bears witness with our spirit, small s, that we are the children of God. Now this is why in John 14, 23, Jesus calls them to obedience. He says, if you love me, if you love me, you'll keep my teaching. My Father will love you, will come to you, will make our home with them. This is the fulfillment of the classic prophetic word of Jeremiah 31 where he said, the day is coming when I will no longer contend with my people through external means, but I will ride upon their hearts my very law, and I will make a new covenant with my people. Jeremiah 31, 34. And Jesus is now fulfilling that by saying, I'm preparing you guys so that you won't be trying to do this in fleshly power. You will be obeying, and your Father in heaven and I will be dwelling with you. We've come so that it could be said, they shall be my people. And I will be their God, and I will dwell among them. So the abiding of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in John 14, is the magnificent source from which those believers in the book of Acts experienced the dynamic power of his presence. Now, clearly, God intervened in a miraculous way in the opening of those jail doors. He doesn't promise to do that in a miraculous way in every circumstance. But that miracle illustrates, just as the miracle of Peter's shadow in the prior verses, falling on the ill and the sick and the, and the, uh, the, the uh, crippled and the lame, and they arose because of the shadow of Peter passing by. had nothing to do with Peter in his intrinsic personhood. He explains that in the third chapter of Acts. No, this was God bringing to life the reality that there is something beyond our human capacity in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And in the abiding promise of Jesus Christ for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to be in our lives, for us to be able to dwell with him, he promises a power that takes us to a new place. I also want to ask you to zip your eyes down to that 27th verse and notice that he speaks of a prevailing peace. My peace I leave with you. My peace give I unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. So this is not just a peacefulness. This is not just an absence of conflict. This is not just a quietness of heart. It may include all of those things, but it is a peace that is greater than that. Jesus says, my peace 
and John 14, 27, is not like the world's peace. My peace is a prevailing peace. <laughs> and these guys, flogged by the Sanhedrin in Acts 5, were moved with a prevailing peace in their hearts to step out boldly and to continue talking about Jesus and all the words of this life. So we might say here in John 14 that what Jesus is really telling them is my joy becomes your joy. And this invincible joy flows into action. It's what we saw in Acts 5 when it says they were rejoicing. Shout that word out with me. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and to proclaim the good things that Jesus had done. And so in this whole section of John 14, 25 to 31, Jesus is compressing for us the wondrous power of the Holy Spirit. And in giving to you and me what those disciples could only have faintly imagined that night in the upper room. And yet, hallelujah, 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit filled that house with a rushing mighty wind, and the Holy Spirit filled all that were there, then they understood. And of course, Jesus had even told them, if you look back in your own text in John 14, 29, he said that's why he had this long conversation recorded in the 14th to 16th chapters of John. He says in John 14, 29, I've told you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. You see, Jesus was doing for them in a, in a spatial or temporal way, in that physical circumstance, what he does for us spiritually now. If you will join me today in realizing that God has placed within our lives this wondrous gift of the Holy Spirit, just as surely as the Holy Spirit has come, the other promise Jesus gave the disciples was the enemy has to flee. How did we start today by talking about evil that surrounds us, evil that seems overwhelming, evil that sometimes feels like it's impenetrable? But what does Jesus say, speak it aloud with me here, from that 30th verse of John 14, the prince of this world is coming, he has no hold over me. John 14 weaves together for you and me a wonderful tapestry of life-giving truth that can make light-hearted living a reality. No, not light-hearted living because there aren't problems. Not light-hearted living because there aren't, there aren't signs of evil around us. Not light-hearted living because we're all completely competent in ourselves. No, light-hearted living because the Holy Spirit has come to lift us in the worst of circumstances, to empower us in the harshest of circumstances, to give us an understanding that belonging to Jesus means our Savior is the one who conquered the prince of this world in his victory over hell, death, and the grave on the cross. In his resurrection glory, Jesus demonstrated what 1 John 3, 8 says, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested to destroy the works of the evil one. Did he not say that? And then to say, 
This is the victory we have. This is the victory that overcomes the world. What? Even our faith. Well, I want to do exactly what Jesus did here physically at our church as we, as we wrap up our time together today. I want to do exactly what he says at the end of that 14th chapter. Now, it's really striking. What did we say that is really a common struggle for many people today? First, is, there, is this all there is? No, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. You have not yet tasted the fullness of what the Holy Spirit has in store for you. I can tell you that confidently. I don't say it, I don't say it as some kind of a, of a uh, prophetic word. I say it straightly from Scripture because God's Word tells us there's so much more of His magnificent being that He invites us to trust Him for. He invites us to ask to be filled and continually be being filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, keeping a light-hearted awakening to the goodness of God. So yes, there is more. <laughs> but the next question was, where do we go from here? We can ask it individually. We can ask it as a congregation. We can ask it in our families. Where do we go from here? You might be asking that yourself. Where do I go from here in my walk with God? How am I charting out a course this year? And I think it's so interesting to realize that the Lord Jesus finished this with a, almost sounds like a, a kind of a, a bit of a uh, connecting statement. And yet it leads us out into that vineyard where he talked about the father being the gardener and him being the true vine. And Jesus says, arise, let us go from this place. Arise, let us go from here. I want to invite you to do that, not just physically as we go from here today. I want to ask you to do that in your companionship with Christ. I want to ask you to do that in your expectancy of the Holy Spirit in your life. I want to ask you to do that as if you were one of the apostles leaving that upper room as they made their way down into the Kidron Valley just before crossing the valley some have surmised that Jesus may have seen a vine growing along the side of the temple there, kind of a free-flowing vine, when he stopped to begin to discourse about the fact, look, I'm the true vine. We don't know exactly where that vine was, but it was in between leaving the room and crossing the Kidron Valley into the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's saying, come, let us go together. Come, let us go from this place where we've been hearing the promise. And friends, let's go from here into that place of fulfillment where exuberant joy, light-hearted living, even in the face of perplexing problems around us, light-hearted living comes with the awakening, Lord, the Holy Spirit truly is the new wine. Being put into this new wineskin, I give my heart to you. I'm going to invite you to pray with me that because for many of us, probably one of the greatest areas of potential pitfall is assuming we already know what, what the Holy Spirit has in store. No, there's more. There's more. There's more for you. There is a place of discovery. There is a place of tapping into his goodness. There is a place of you knowing 
that in your companionship with the living Savior, the Holy Spirit is doing what we saw in Romans 8. He's bearing witness to your spirit that you are indeed a child of God. And there is a, 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 an overflow of exuberant joy. Sure, there are those days when a, a doctor's report comes, a difficult decision needs to be made, a conversation you don't know how to navigate, a decision you're struggling about, maybe just overwhelming details piling up on your desk, and you feel like, where am I going to start with this? In all of those and a thousand and one other human dilemmas you face, friend, would you arise and let's go from this place with expectancy of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, empowering you, leading you, blessing you in Jesus' name. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you. Would you stand together just for a moment? And uh, I want to invite you for a moment to just let it sink in. Uh, take just maybe a minute here to kind of say yes in your own heart. Could you do that? Just in some way, just to say yes to the Lord. Say yes. I truly want to know you. I truly want to walk with you. I truly want to step into that place of, of, of heartful expectancy in my life. Oh, Lord, you are glorious, victorious. 